This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. Today, Christopher Nolan talks about directing the new film Oppenheimer, about the man who's known as the father of the atomic bomb, J. Robert Oppenheimer. You come to film the scenes where we're looking from Oppenheimer's point of view, we're experiencing the news of the bombings coming through, change the world forever. Whether we like it or not, we live in Oppenheimer's world, and we always will. And we'll also hear from writer and humorist R. Eric Thomas. His new book of essays is called Congratulations, the Best is Over. In it, Thomas explores what it's like to move back to his hometown of Baltimore as a middle-aged man. It's a place he felt a lot of emotional pain in and memories he didn't want to revisit. But then he realized... Okay, if I'm not letting Baltimore be new, then why should I get to be new in this city? And later, Maureen Corrigan reviews the new novel by James McBride. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at StearnsAndFoster.com. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. Terry has our first interview, so I'll let her introduce it. My guest Christopher Nolan wrote and directed the new film Oppenheimer, one of the most popular and talked about films of the summer. Christopher Nolan also made the World War II film Dunkirk, as well as the films Tenet, the Batman trilogy, Inception, Insomnia, and Memento. Globally, his films have made more than $5 billion at the box office. Oppenheimer is a biopic about the man who was called the father of the atom bomb, Robert Oppenheimer. He was a theoretical physicist and directed Los Alamos, the secret project in New Mexico, where research was conducted to create the first atom bomb and where that first bomb was designed and tested. When it was detonated, we crossed the threshold into a new world in which humans could destroy humankind. The bomb was intended to end World War II. By the time it was tested, Germany had surrendered, but Japan had not. The U.S. dropped atom bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945. That ended the war, but it's estimated that as many as 200,000 people were killed. Oppenheimer became an advocate of arms control after the war and opposed military plans for massive strategic bombing with nuclear weapons, which he considered genocidal. He also opposed the creation of the even deadlier hydrogen bomb. 
1954, during the height of the anti-communist era, he was accused of being a risk to national security because of his alleged earlier ties to the Communist Party. He protested at a hearing that culminated in being stripped of his security clearance. Last December, that decision was revoked by Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. Christopher Nolan, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you. Before we talk about your films and hear a scene from Oppenheimer, let's talk about the writers and actor strikes, which have shut down new TV and film productions. You're very successful. I doubt you have to worry about better contracts. What does the strike mean to you as a director working with actors? Well, I think as as any working member of our business feels, it's a very important time in, in relationship between labor and management. Um, these these things happen from time to time. Every few decades, there's a, there's a crisis like this. But it's an important moment in our business where the way in which myself as a writer and a member of the Writers Guild um, and my friends and colleagues who are actors who, who are out right now, the ways in which we're compensated have to be updated to reflect uh, the current world, um, and it's unfortunately requiring, uh, you know, strike action to do that. And so, you know, my thoughts are very much with the working members of our business, um, not just writers and actors, but also the other crew members who are out of work until this gets resolved. So I'm very hopeful that it's going to get resolved as quickly as possible. So you are in the Writers Guild, and the Guild is on strike. Is it okay for you to be here? Because I know the writers and actors have been told, like, don't promote your movies during the strike. But you're also the director of the film, and you might be contractually obligated to promote it. <laughs> so that puts you in an awkward spot. I, I Like a lot of people in our business, I'm in, I'm in a very awkward position in a lot of different ways. You know, as a director and as a producer on, on Oppenheimer, I'm contractually obliged to promote the film. Um, but I also feel that where it's possible for me to be out there having a voice as a Guild member, as a Writers Guild member, uh, I think that's important because I think it can be difficult to get our point of view across. You know, this is a moment in which companies have, to a certain degree, taken advantage of technological shifts um, that our contracts need to be updated to uh, reflect that. Uh, it applies to theatrical film, which is the area I work in, but it applies even more so, I think, to television in the streaming era. Um, and these things need to be taken care of. Well, let's move on to Oppenheimer. And I'd like to start this part of our conversation with a scene from the film. So let me introduce the scene. Uh, so Oppenheimer is speaking with General Leslie Groves, who headed the Manhattan Project, which Los Alamos was part of. And Groves is asking Oppenheimer about the possibility that the atom bomb test could set off a chain reaction that would set fire to the atmosphere and destroy Earth, a possibility that Groves heard one of the top nuclear physicists, Enrico Fermi, refer to. So Oppenheimer is played by Killian Murphy and Groves by Matt Damon. Groves speaks first. What did Fermi mean by uh, atmospheric ignition? Well, we had a moment where it looked like the chain reaction from an atomic device might never stop. Setting fire to the atmosphere. Well, why is Fermi still taking side bets on it? Call it gallows humor. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Nothing in our research over three years supports that conclusion except it's the most remote 
possibility. How remote, chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want for theory alone? Zero would be nice. Okay, that's a scene from Oppenheimer, and my guest is the writer and director of the film, Christopher Nolan. That's such a frightening <laughs> idea, and I, I know that the scientists were really convinced that there wasn't going to be this atmospheric uh, ignition where the whole atmosphere would catch on fire and destroy Earth, but you're not, I guess you never really know based on theoretical physics, what's going to happen when you blow up an atom bomb? Um, hmm. So um, what was it like for you to think about that as you were making the movie? I think for me, that knowledge that leading up to the Trinity test, the leading scientists led by Oppenheimer, they could not completely eliminate the possibility of this chain reaction. Um, that was one of the things that really got me interested in Oppenheimer's story and, and making a film from it because it's simply the most high-stakes, dramatic situation that, that you could conceive of. It, it beats anything in fiction. Um, I'd actually uh, put a reference to it in my previous film, Tenet, uh, in dialogue. I, I used it as an analogy for the science fiction situation at the heart of that film. Um, but we referred to that moment. And then after finishing that film... Um, it was actually one of the stars of, of Tenet, Rob Pattinson. He gave me a book of Oppenheimer's speeches post-World War II, uh, speeches in which you see uh, him trying to reckon with, and, you, and you, you're reading about the, the great minds of the time trying to reckon with the consequences of, of this thing that they've unleashed on the world. Um, but that initial notion, that, that fact that I learned of, that they couldn't, using theory alone, completely eliminate the possibility of, of global destruction based on triggering the first atomic test. Um, I just wanted to be in that room. I wanted to take the audience into that room for the moment where they would push that button. So much work went into making the first atom bomb, and so many theoretical physicists were involved, all the calculations, and then you have the reality of it exploding. So the bomb worked. All their work paid off. It was a success. And in the film, all the scientists are gathered and they're applauding. Um, that's before it was actually used for real. Knowing what you know now, how did it feel to watch their enthusiasm, their applause, to film that? It felt very exciting. It felt lost in the excitement of it. And that was really the the idea, I mean, at the heart of the film, there's a, there's a pivot. And it's really the pivot between the successful Trinity test and then the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the, the actual use of the weapon. And so for me, the focus of the film, it needed to be this build towards the most incredible excitement and tension around that test, whether or not they could pull off this extraordinary feat that they had been drawn into trying to accomplish based on this desperate race against the Nazis to be the first power to harness control or power of, of atomic weapons. And, you know, the Germans had split the atom. The Nazis had the best physicists or some of the best physicists in the world at their disposal, and they were trying as hard as they could to make the first atomic bomb. 
And so Oppenheimer and his fellow scientists who were called upon by their country, um, they had no choice. And there's this moment, of course, where they're pushing for years, spending billions of dollars. They've built this whole community out in the, the middle of nowhere devoted to this one thing of making this chain reaction happen, making this, this atomic blast work. And it all boils down to that moment of the Trinity test. And they pull it off. And there's such joy and excitement around that. And I wanted the audience to be caught up in that. I wanted to be caught up in that. But then, you know, you come to film the scenes where we're looking from Oppenheimer's point of view, we're experiencing the news of the bombings coming through, unbelievably awful, and change the world forever. Um, whether we like it or not, we live in Oppenheimer's world, um, and we always will. We're listening to Terry's interview with Christopher Nolan. He wrote and directed the new film Oppenheimer. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, streaming acclaimed original series you won't find anywhere else. With powerful performances from Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, Bella Ramsey, Matthew McFadden, and more. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Christopher Nolan. He wrote and directed the new film Oppenheimer about the man who was called the father of the atomic bomb. He also made the films Dunkirk, Tenet, The Batman Trilogy, Inception, Insomnia, and Memento. What era of the nuclear age did you grow up in? Did you have to do like school take shelter drills? Uh, Were there bomb shelters where you grew up? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting talking to Steven Spielberg after I showed him the film because he was talking about his experience in the 1960s, Cuban Missile Crisis, all of that, and duck and cover drills. And I was talking about the 1980s, which was very similar in the United Kingdom. There was there was a lot of fear surrounding nuclear weapons. Um, it was a time of protest. The campaign for nuclear disarmament was at its height of, of membership. There were protests uh, around Greenham Common, uh, which was an air base in the United Kingdom. The, the Americans were putting cruise missiles in. Um, there was a lot of fear in pop culture around nuclear weapons. And I've sort of watched that fear ebb and flow over my lifetime as the geopolitical situation shifted. But of course, the danger has never gone away. Um, and it's almost as if, you know, our capacity to be afraid of one particular threat 
to humanity gets exhausted and we have to worry about something else. And that's not to say that nuclear weapons are the only threat to humanity. I mean, you know, climate change, things like that, they're all, they're all kinds of very complicated problems that need to be dealt with and, and worried about. But nuclear weapons is the one that's never gone away. And nuclear weapons are singular in their ability to instantly destroy life on Earth. Um, and so when I first started writing this film and I spoke to one of my teenage sons about the subject I was working on, he literally said to me, oh, is that is that really something people worry about anymore? Um, and of course, in the time it took me to make the film with the invasion of Ukraine and so forth, uh, he was not asking that question two years later. One of the things that you had to think about was what was going through Oppenheimer's mind when the button was pushed, launching the test bomb. I'm wondering what went through your mind <laughs> when the button was pushed, launching the bomb in your movie. <laughs> I mean, it was an interestingly analogous situation. Um, I don't like to use computer graphics. I don't like to do things with green screens and so forth. So we had engineered a situation whereby we were performing very large explosions for the actors there out in the desert in the middle of the night in the same bunkers they would have been in. Um, and I think that gave all of us some feeling of the tension that would have been there leading up to the Trinity test, in particular because when you do pyrotechnic effects, safety is obviously of paramount importance. And so there's an extraordinary amount of tension and planning around those moments before you trigger those events. And there's always that slight uncertainty about exactly what they're going to look like, what they're going to sound like, you know, how frightening they're going to be, essentially. Um, and so I think all of us, in our own small way, got some taste of, of what the tension there would have been for the people uh, at Trinity. And I think that, that helped us construct the drama of it for the audience. Can you talk a little bit about how you created the image of the bomb exploding? One of the first people I showed the script to when I finished it was my visual effects supervisor, Andrew Jackson. Um, and I showed it to him right away because I said to him, you know, we have to get the Trinity test across. We also have to try and give some insights into the way Oppenheimer would have visualized molecular interactions um, and how that builds to its ultimate expression in, in the Trinity test. But I want to do it without computer graphics. And, and the thing with CG is it tends to feel, even though it's very versatile, it's as animation, it tends to feel a bit safe, a bit anodyne. Uh, and it was very important to me that firstly, the atomic interactions that Oppenheim is visualizing, but then ultimately the power of the device they build itself, the gadget, as they called it, that they detonated at Trinity. You wanted it to be the most beautiful, the most terrifying thing simultaneously. So Andrew spent many months experimenting with very small things, very microscopic images that could be filmed to represent bigger things, but then also massive explosions using you know different forms of explosives, magnesium flares and petrol explosions, uh, black powder explosions, things like that, um, different frame rates and so forth. So there was just a, a lot of experimentation that went into it. And what I was very happy about was that the imagery that he was giving me did have the requisite threat, even with its hypnotic beauty. What's your approach to biopics? Like what liberties to take and what to be faithful to? 
Well, in a funny sort of way, my approach is to not even acknowledge biopic as a genre. Um, in other words, if if something works, like Lawrence of Arabia, for example, you don't think of it as a biopic. You think of it as a great adventure story, uh, even though obviously it's telling the story of somebody's life or Citizen Kane or, you know, one of these great films. I mean, obviously it's fiction. But for me, I had the benefit of this extraordinary book, uh, American Prometheus, that was written, you know, Martin Sherwin, who first started writing it, uh, he spent 25 years researching Oppenheimer's story and speaking to everybody who knew him and you know all the rest. So by the time he and Kai Bird finished, they put the book out. It won the Pulitzer Prize. You know, I had this extraordinary sort of Bible to work from, and so for me, it was really a process of saying, okay, what's the exciting story that develops? The cinematic story that develops from a reading of it, from several readings of it. And then started to develop a structure for how I might be able to put the audience into Oppenheimer's head. Your new film, Oppenheimer, is shot to be seen on an IMAX, and a lot of people will not have the opportunity of seeing it that way. But I think some people are puzzled, like, why shoot a movie that's largely people talking to each other and people thinking and people being anguished over the possibilities of the bomb? Why shoot that in IMAX, which is usually reserved for films that have incredible landscapes or that have incredible, um, fantastical cinematography? Well, I've used IMAX for years. um, And going into Oppenheimer, talking to Hoyter, my DP, um, we knew that it would give us, with its high resolution, its sort of extraordinary analog color, sharpness, all of these things, the big screens that that you projected on. We knew it would give us the landscapes of New Mexico, that it would give us the Trinity test, which we felt had to be a showstopper. Um, But we actually got really excited about the idea of the human face. You know, how can it help us jump into Oppenheimer's head? The story is told subjectively. I even wrote the script in the first person. You know, I this, I that. Um, We were looking for the the visual equivalent of that. And so taking those high-resolution IMAX cameras and, you know, really just trying to be there for the intimate moments of the story uh, in a way that we felt we hadn't really seen people do before with that format, um, that was, you know, a source of particular excitement for us. And as we started to project dailies, because we still print the film and project the dailies, um, you know, in the old-fashioned way. Uh, But you start to see how that's going to help tell the story and how that's going to help, you know, put us in in his head. And that became very exciting. Does it pain you to think that probably a lot of people will end up watching Oppenheimer on their phones or on little tablets? (laughs) No, not at all. I I actually, uh, you know, I'm one of the first generations of filmmakers who grew up with home video. So, you know, my family got its first... VHS player when I was about 11 years old. And so I've sort of come of age in a world of film where more people are always going to see your your film in the home. That's always been the case. Um, But the thing about the way film distribution works is if if you make your film for the biggest possible screen and you put it out there in the biggest possible way, firstly, the technical quality of the image 
carries through to all the subsequent versions of the film that you then master. But also the excitement around the event of the thing, what the thing is. It starts to be defined in the popular imagination by its theatrical release. And that follows right the way down for the life of, of the movie. Um, so that's, that's the world of filmmaking that I've grown up in and one that uh, I very much enjoy. Um, I'm interested in your relationship to technology. I mean, you're using state-of-the-art technology, you know, 70 millimeter for IMAX. At the same time, I've read that you don't have um, real, like, tech cell phone. I think you have, like, a flip phone, maybe. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I think there's other, like, tech things, like email, maybe, that you don't use. And so it strikes me as a kind of um, uh, strange that you'd use such, like, state-of-the-art you know, cinematography, but, you know, reject things like a cell phone. At the same time, I know that there's, like, CGI. You don't like to use CGI because it looks mm-hmm. fake to you. Um, so, like, where do you draw the line with technology? Technology is whatever the tools are available to us. So I shoot my films on celluloid film, preferably IMAX celluloid film, because it's the best analogy for the way the eye sees the world. So it gives you the highest possible quality. For me, it's about using the best tool for the job. So, for example, you know, sometimes I get asked whether it's still, you know, edit on film. Uh, and I've never edited on film. I've always, <laughs> always edited on the computer because it's the only practical way to do it. But then when we finish the creative process of editing, we cut the film up, we cut the negative up, we glue it together, we print from there, and that's the finishing process. And so for me, you know, the approach to technology is always about how can it help you? How can it help you do something better? Um, and I've always liked not having a, a smartphone in my pocket because it just sort of means when you get those those pockets of time, you know, when you turn up early for a meeting and you're waiting for somebody or whatever, um, you spend a bit more time thinking and, and just, you know, I suppose using your imagination in a way. And for me, with the amount of work that I try to do and, and figuring out what the next project is, advancing different things in my mind, having those pockets of time is actually pretty valuable. I've also got a terribly addictive personality, and I think if I had a smartphone, I'd, I'd spend the whole time you know, just on it and, uh, you know, absorbed in it the way I see a lot of people absorbed in it. So uh, it's something I never I never started doing, and now it feels a bit, bit of a superpower that I don't have one. So <laughs> I'm going to try and, try and maintain my allegiance to the dumb phone or the flip phone. Thank you so much for coming back to our show. Sure. Thank you for having me. Christopher Nolan wrote and directed the new film Oppenheimer. James McBride's new novel, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, opens in 1972 in a neighborhood of Pottsville, Pennsylvania called Chicken Hill, a place where immigrant Jews and black Americans have lived next to each other for decades. Our book critic Maureen Corrigan says that the story that follows is an all-American mix of humor, horror, and social history. I don't often begin reviews talking about the very last pages of a book, but an uncommon novel calls for an uncommon approach. In the acknowledgments at the end of his new novel called The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, James McBride cites as his inspiration a camp for what was then called handicapped children outside Philadelphia, where he worked every summer as a college student during the 1970s. 
The remarkable camp director, McBride says, taught him lifetime lessons about inclusivity, love, and acceptance, all without pontificating. McBride tried and failed for years to write about that camp. Eventually, it morphed into a novel about Pottstown, Pennsylvania, and a historically black and immigrant Jewish neighborhood called Chicken Hill. In a tip of the hat to that inspirational camp, characters with disabilities also play crucial roles in McBride's story. If you think this novel is beginning to sound too nice, too pat, you don't know James McBride's writing. He crowds the chaos of the world into his sentences. The Heaven and Earth grocery store opens in 1972 when workers clearing a lot for a new townhouse development in Pottstown discover a skeleton at the bottom of a well, along with a mezuzah, a small case that often hangs on the door frames of Jewish homes. The police question the one elderly Jewish man still living at the site of the old synagogue on Chicken Hill. But before the investigation intensifies, an act of God intervenes. Hurricane Agnes hits the Northeast, washing away the crime scene. McBride's storyline then bends backwards to 1925, when a Jewish theater manager named Moshe Ludlow and his wife Chona are living above the Heaven and Earth grocery store, which she runs. Moshe's business is prospering, especially after he branches out from klezmer music and begins booking black performers, like the real-life swing drummer Chick Webb. Since immigrant Jews are now moving off Chicken Hill into the center of town, Moshe figures he and Chona should join the exodus. Chona, a kind woman with a spine of steel, thinks otherwise. In the midst of an argument, Moshe points out the kitchen window towards Pottstown below and shouts, Down the hill is America! But Chona was adamant. America is here, she says. Fortunately, Chona wins that tug of war, which means she stays close to the Heaven and Earth grocery store. It's a gathering place for Polish, Bulgarian, and Lithuanian Jews, everyone from shoemakers to gangsters, as well as Italian laborers and the so-called colored maids, housekeepers, saloon cleaners, factory workers, and bellhops of Chicken Hill. The diverse crowd is by no means inclusive. Characters tend to stick with their own kind, and racial and ethnic groups split into smaller cliques. Black people from Hemlock Row, for instance, derisively regard the residents of Chicken Hill as on-the-move, moving-on-up, climb-the-tree, NAACP-type Negroes, wanting to be American. But when the state decides to institutionalize a 12-year-old black boy named Dodo, who's been branded deaf and dumb, a group of characters violate lines of color and class, as well as the law, to try to save the boy. That plot summary is so simplified, I feel like I've committed some kind of a crime against the nuances of this novel. 
McBride's roving narrator is by turns astute, withering, giddy, damning, and jubilant. He has a fine appreciation for the human comedy. In particular, the surreal situation of African Americans and immigrant Jews in an early to mid-20th century America that celebrates itself as a colorblind, welcoming land of liberty. Like his long-ago mentor at that summer camp, McBride doesn't pontificate. He gets his social criticism across through the story itself and in snappy conversations between characters. For instance, Moshe's cousin, a sourpuss named Isaac, asks a fellow immigrant if he wants to go back to the old country. The other man replies, I like it here. The politicians try to cut your throat with one hand while saluting the flag with the other. Then they tax you. Saves them the trouble of calling you a dirty Jew. As he's done throughout his spectacular writing career, McBride looks squarely at savage truths about race and prejudice. But he also insists on humor and hope. The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store is one of the best novels I've read this year. It pulls off the singular magic trick of being simultaneously flattening and uplifting. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed James McBride's new novel, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you... If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Our next guest is author and humorist R. Eric Thomas. You know that expression, you can never go home again? It's a reminder of how nostalgia can sometimes warp our sense of the past. Our Eric Thomas's new book explores what it actually feels like in practice to go back to the place where you were born, especially when your relationship with that place is complicated. The book is called Congratulations, the Best is Over, and it's a series of humorous essays recounting Thomas's journey back to his hometown of Baltimore. After going off to college, Thomas thought he'd left the city in the rearview mirror until his husband got a new job there, forcing him to wrestle with the life and version of himself he thought he'd left behind. Our Eric Thomas is a television writer, playwright, and author of the best-selling book, Here For It, or How to Save Your Soul in America, reclaiming her time, the power of Maxine Waters, and the young adult novel, Kings of Be More. 
Thomas is also the long-running host of The Moth in Philadelphia and previously a senior staff writer for L Online, which he wrote the popular Eric Reads the News column. Our Eric Thomas, welcome to Fresh Air. Tanya, I am so excited to be here. Good to talk to you. I know, me too. I'm glad to have you. So you call this book of essays a coming of middle age collection. And yeah. I love that so much because there really aren't enough middle age stories out there. How does it how does it feel to be in your new form as a middle aged person? You're oh, 41, right? I'm 42, um, but 42. I look 27. Um, yes. It feels, you know, I have to say it's every time I hear that phrase, which I made up and have been using to promote this book, I also cringe a little bit, not because I don't want to be the age that I am, um, but because, you know, because of the question inherent in the title, like, is the best over? You know, my therapist, um, Brian, my former therapist in in Baltimore, uh, was talking me through some of the issues I was having adjusting to living at home. And he was like, you know, this is a very normal thing for you as you move into middle age. And I was like, move into where? Like, no, no, no. Because <laughs> I, you know, like, and because I, I I would tell him about, you know, my my parents' experience of middle age, where in their 40s, they were going through job stress, and they lost their parents, and they had kids that were both achieving, but also struggling. And, you know, by the end of my parents' 40s, all their parents had, uh, had, had, died and I had dropped out of college and I was moving back, living back at home and they were hard years and I didn't want to live hard years. But I also remember that as a time of achievement. My mother got her doctorate. My father moved into the job that he would eventually retire from. So I, every decade of my life has been better than the one beforehand. And I want to believe that this decade also, uh, and the decades further, will be also really wonderful. I think you heard you say, I heard you say that this book explores the middle, not just in an age sense, but what it's like when you're in transition from one point of life to another. That's exactly what you're saying here. And so your move from Philadelphia back to your hometown of Baltimore after your husband takes a job as a pastor there was one of those big transitions. It was very much a middle space that you were in. This was a big deal because you used to actually say, I don't even want to move back to Baltimore to be buried, no. which is a very powerful statement. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, and I hesitated to put that in the book, but it was true. Um, and of course, it ended up on the book jacket. So, um, you know, but it is where I begin in this story. And you always have to go someplace in a story. And the place I began was in this really fraught relationship with the city. And it's not the city's fault, but Baltimore is a city that has gotten a pervasively bad rap. Um, and I knew that as a resident, I knew that as somebody who lived on a block where they would film the television show Homicide and the television show The Wire. And so, like, not only was my block a place that had been redlined into desolation and disrepair, but it was so convincing as a place of no hope that it was used as a Hollywood backdrop for um, a, a cautionary tale um, for years on television. And so I thought to myself, when I got out of Baltimore— and moved to Philadelphia and found myself through storytelling, through community, um, through therapy, and eventually through love. I felt for a while that if I went back to Baltimore, I would lose all that, like a spell breaking. And then I found myself there with my husband, with the person that I found in Philadelphia. 
And I was surrounded by the ghosts of the person that I used to be. And I would tell him these stories as we rode around town. I just point to things and say, oh, that's, that's where I was, you know, in an attempted carjacking. And, oh, you know, that's, I had a really bad experience here. And I got thrown out of, you know, this cab here because they didn't want to go to my neighborhood. It was too dangerous. And David was like, <laughs> David's my husband. He was like, did you know that every story about Baltimore is the saddest thing I've ever heard? And I was like, I'm just making color commentary. But I needed to find new stories. And that's the journey I go on in this book. This area that you grew up in, as you said, it had been redlined for more than 40 years. Did those depictions that you saw on television and The Wire, for instance, did they feel accurate or affirming or was it hard for you to watch? It felt like the way that the neighborhood was designed to function, um, which was not the way that life functioned inside of my parents' house. And here for it, I describe my growing up as being inside of a bubble. And we describe people who live in a bubble as out of touch. And I think that actually we were deeply in touch. Bubbles are also transportation devices. Um, They lifted us out of the mire of uh, the circumstances that are outside our door, the crime, the violence, the lack of opportunity, and into a a sense of self that was um, positive and full of possibility. My parents told me and my brothers that we could do anything. um, And then they showed us, they showed us in libraries and in love and in um, taking us to different schools and taking us out physically out of the space, but also creating a world inside of the house that was different than the world outside. Not because we were better than any of those people, but because the, but because we were, it was important for them to, for us to have a different narrative. So when I would watch The Wire, it's, I had this weird experience. I came back right after college and I was substitute teaching and I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm so miserable And I would come out of my house in the morning and I would find people who I perceived to be um, people who are addicted to drugs waiting for an open air drug market sitting on the step, which was not an uncommon occurrence. And I'd make my way through them. I'd say, excuse me, wrong steps, you know. um, And then, you know, I'd turn the corner and there'd be a craft services table. And then I have to go back Mm -hmm. and be like, wait, are you actors? Um, Mm -hmm. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, we're actors. I was like, well, get off my steps. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) And and that's it's it's hard to know if you're in the right story if the story around you is constantly telling you that there is no hope for you. And I just knew that wasn't true. I thought it was really interesting. I think it was around the time The Wire came out, or it was like at its height, you wrote this young adult novel called The Kings of Beemore, which is set in Baltimore. It's about two queer kids having a very Ferris Bueller's day kind of day off. I love how you say writing this allowed you to tell a story of Baltimore that is not rooted in trauma. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, actually, I, I wrote Kings of Beemore in 2020, um, so a little bit after The Wire. Um, but um, I was very invested in telling a new story of Baltimore. And at this point, you know, the Kings of Beemore is my third book. It was my first novel. And I was like, oh, I am the storyteller now. Um, I, you know, and this is no disrespect to the creators of The Wire. You know, it's not about <laughs> Eric versus The Wire. I think it's a very good show. Um, and for there were many years where every white person I met who I told I was from Baltimore, they would say, I love The Wire. The Wire, right. As if that was a compliment <laughs> to me personally. Um, so I would say, thank you. <laughs> um, and um, 
But Kings of Beanmore is an opportunity to tell a different story. And it isn't, I don't see it as wish fulfillment or fantasy. I see Baltimore as a city of art and music and food. Um, of, of It's a very black city. Um, it is also a very diverse city. It's a city where there's a lot of queer opportunity and queer community. And I wanted to give that um, to readers and I wanted to give it to two black teens that who don't experience, you know, homophobia inside of the book, who are not, um, who aren't experiencing racism inside the book. And it's not like it doesn't exist. It is very much a part of the world because they live in the real world. But I knew that it was possible for them to have a story where the reason that we're telling the story is not to remind the reader that it is hard to be them. It's to remind the reader that as humans, they have such a great capacity, these two boys have such a great capacity for love and for hope, um, because I know that's true. That's something that I fought very hard for, for myself. Your parents um, really provided you this space within Baltimore. So there was home, there was that, that interior life, and then there was what was happening all throughout the city. You also grew up in an evangelical Christian community. And your last book before this one actually ends with you marrying your husband, David, who is a pastor. I think you actually said that um, that ending sounded too perfect, which it kind of does, too. Um, But you had to grapple with a few things between childhood and getting married around your sexual orientation and your faith. I did. I did. And it's another one of those stories where I thought that there was only one narrative and I thought that there was only one ending. And, you know, the church that I grew up in, not only was there um, uh, very negative messaging around LGBTQ people, but there was also this narrative that I intuited that was about suffering and that we deserved to suffer. Um, And I looked around at these people that I loved so much. Um, It was an all-black church, and many, most of the people were, you know, lower middle class or lower class. And I said to myself, I think some of this suffering is not actually rooted in sin or in our inherent badness. I think some of this is actually systemic. Um, I didn't have that word back then. I was 13. But I... um, I struggled with this this idea that we were in the wrong story, too. And so I, I, I searched for faith community for a long time. One time I went to visit a church with uh, my good friend Jake, um, who also grew up um, in uh, evangelical spaces and was searching for um, a, a church room that would accept him. And we found this church um, that was open and affirming and we went and everybody was wearing a rainbow pin and they were so excited to see us and we had accidentally dressed um, exactly alike and so we looked like boyfriends or missionaries or I don't know maybe missionary boyfriends and we weren't we were just friends and we were like oh you know it's great that you have a lot of gay people here this is wonderful and they're like oh we don't but we really want to Um, Mm. and that was lovely but we wanted to be in a space where we actually we're both welcomed, wanted, but also we already were. And that's what I found when I found David's church. Um, the conflict, of course, about finding a church that was open and affirming and had a queer pastor and many other queer people is that then I had to decide, do I want to be a congregant or do I want to be a boyfriend? Because um, you can't be both. Um, so You can't be both. No, you know. And so then I was like, oh, what a, what a rom-com dilemma I'm in. Um, and so what then do you I mean did you can't be both? 
Well, you know, David would not date a congregant, which is, I think, morally right and um, and spiritually healthy. And so if I was going to him for spiritual guidance, for mentorship, um, for community, then I couldn't be pursuing a, re- a romantic relationship with him. He has very clear ethical boundaries, um, which is new for me. I was like, ethics? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> what? And um, And so, like, you know, we met. And at a um, um, at a, a a panel at the LGBT community center, and I was so compelled by him and his ability to tell stories. And um, I was like, I want to go to your church, which apparently, which I didn't know, put up all the guardrails. And so he gave me his business card, and I was like, Okay, well, I can't I can't text emojis to this, and you know, good morning, boo. You know, I can't do that. So. <laughs> So I did nothing. Um, but then he showed up at a one-person show I was doing, um, a storytelling show that I – it was called Always the Bridesmaid. And it was about a search for God. Um, God it was, the tagline was search for God, boys, and baked goods. Um, and it was just about how I wanted to find a religious community and I wanted to find love. And sitting right there in the audience, I found both. So you all found this community in Baltimore through your husband's church – and I'm also wondering how that um, was their interaction with your your family's church as evangelical Christians as well. You said they weren't going to the same church that they did that you grew up in. But um, did that come together in a way that felt like you could be a part of a larger community, the one that you grew up in, in a sense, that involved your parents in this new place that you found? Well, it's, it's fascinating to me because as I've gone on this journey of, of writing books, I have had different experiences where I've done book events and people from the old church and people from my parents' new church, which is more progressive, and people from uh, David's church, which is very progressive, have all sort of been in the audience. And I look out and I think to myself, like, oh, is this church too? And I am, I am of the belief that Sometimes church is the building, you know, sometimes it is the walls and the the door and the stained glass and the choir loft and the smell of perfume and old hymnals. And that's great. That's a wonderful sensory experience. But sometimes church is literally wherever the people are. Um, And so church for me sometimes is a Beyonce concert or um, or a gay bar on a great night um, or a um, a car ride um, with one or two other people where we're really connecting with each other. And so I, I hungered, I think I kept looking for the building that I was supposed to walk into where they would say, you are home. And I don't think, I don't know that that building exists. Maybe that's heaven. Um, maybe I'll get there um, and see it. And I'll be like, oh, that's, I've been looking for this. But in the meantime, there are these churches all over this earth and I'm grateful for that because there was never a moment where everything knit itself together. There were plenty of moments of welcome and change and new stories, but um, there was never, for me, because of the story that I'm living in, I think, a moment where everything all came together. What is your relationship with Baltimore today? Oh, you has know, it changed after that experience living there? Oh yeah! Oh my gosh, it has. And um, I think of the city now in its. I realized that I was not giving the city a fair shake, and that I was doing the same thing that those people would do to me. I was like, I know 
how bad it is. I know all the local politics. I know, you know, they can't get the red line together, um, which is a subway that they've been talking about building for 30 years and they really should build. Um, And I realized, okay, if I'm not letting Baltimore be new, then why should I get to be new in this city? And Kings of Beemore was the turning point for me. Kings of Beemore is a book about the city in all of its beauty and its diversity and its possibility. And it wasn't hard to write. It was the easiest. It was it was the quickest writing process of all my books and the most fulfilling. And I said to myself, oh, my, oh, this place that I felt such pain in, I get to craft this story that is nothing but joy for me and hopefully for others. So I worried when I was writing Congratulations, the Best is Over, that people who live and love Baltimore would see the same old story getting played out, that they would say, oh, this person, yet another person trashing Baltimore. But, you know, the response so far has been people saying, I understand that it's a journey sometimes. Um, But I got to the end of the journey. Our Eric Thomas, thank you so much for this conversation and for this book. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Our Eric Thomas's new book of essays is called Congratulations, the Best is Over. I feel like falling in love. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday.